Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, uh, I guess it's uh, well, I guess it's been about three weeks now since we were last together here in the salon, and uh, for most of that time, I was uh, completely free from the tyranny of email. <laughs> Although uh, I wasn't actually able to take a complete tech break because uh, I still uh, approved all the comments that uh, came in for our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog which, uh, as you know, you can find via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, also, I occasionally uh, tap the like icon on Flipboard when I surf through the Facebook posts. But uh, for the most part, it was a low-tech holiday with a lot of time spent riding in a car. Among other things that I did was to uh, spend some time in Lone Pine visiting with Jean Stoleroff. And if you haven't already listened to her and Myron's stories in my uh, three Lone Pine podcasts, uh, number 83, 84, and 92, uh, I think you owe it to yourself to go back and listen to them now. Uh, there's, there's really a significant amount of psychedelic history in those three interviews, uh, not to mention some of the other programs that have featured Myron and Gene. Although, uh, of course, Gene generally uh, kept quiet and uh, just sort of prompted Myron with whispers, uh, letting him take center stage. And this visit wasn't any different as far as uh, recording our conversation, uh, since Jean didn't want me to turn on my recorder. So you'll just have to wonder about the great stories she told. Uh, but what I can tell you, however, is, uh, first of all, Myron's condition is about the same. He's uh, suffering from severe dementia and uh, really no longer recognizes old friends. Uh, and he's also on a feeding tube. So please send some white light his way after you listen to his stories that I podcast. And uh, my guess is that on some level he'll hear you. The other thing that I can mention is that uh, Gene and I share an interest in that old big band music uh, that I grew up hearing and uh, that she danced to as a young woman. Uh, and since Gene is now 86 years old and I'm only 70, she was uh, way ahead of me in that particular music scene. Uh, while I was a kid listening to uh, what at the time I very sneeringly thought of as my parents' music, well, Gene was uh, cutting class and attending live performances of many of these old great bands whose uh, music I now actually enjoy. Uh, anyway, uh, while there were hundreds of psychedelic adventure stories still left untold, we instead spent a lot of our time talking about the Dorsey Brothers, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, and uh, <laughs> a raft of other old bands. Eventually, I made it up to Oregon, where uh, we spent some time with our dear friends Claudia and Ron Little, who you can hear more from in my uh, podcast number 218, which is titled The Truth About Cannabis. Uh, and as you know, Claudia is uh, a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of Americans for Safe Access, which is uh, an organization that you may want to read more about. And uh, you can find them on the web at uh, Safe Access Now, all one word, safeaccessnow.org. And I'll put a link to that in the program notes for this podcast. In addition to seeing Claudia and Ron and uh, taking a side trip with them to Crater Lake, we also got to see our longtime friend Jade, who uh, I always give the credit to for my naming this podcast the Psychedelic Salon and not the Entheogenic Salon. Pretty good advice, don't you think? 
And uh, Jade is uh, not only a donor to this salon, he is also always on the lookout for new items for me to podcast. And this time uh, he introduced me to uh, someone whose work I have uh, not only already podcast, but uh, (laughs) whose permission I hadn't requested to do so. Uh, However, this has a very happy ending because uh, this person was delighted that I podcast the audio from a video program that he produced, and uh, he even gave me more tapes to digitize and get out to you. The man that I'm talking about is Stephen Marshank, and uh, he was the producer of the two-DVD video set of Terrence McKenna that you can find on YouTube and other places under the title Prognosis. And in my podcast number 306, you can hear part of uh, that audio featuring Terrence's interview with Ram Dass. And now that I have this little fun bit of trivia that I learned from Stephen about that interview, I've got to pass it along to you. Uh, you see, in my podcast, I cut out a very short section at the beginning uh, where a waiter comes up to the table where Terrence and Ram Dass are sitting, and uh, he has a really funny interchange with them. But what I didn't know before was that this uh, so-called waiter was a plant. And it turns out that Terrence actually knew who the man was, but uh, didn't know that he was going to intrude on their conversation. Uh, and Ramdas had no clue that it was a setup. <laughs> so uh, just now I went out and watched the beginning of that video again, and uh, it's even funnier now that I know the whole story. Uh, the reason I didn't include it in my podcast is that without the video, it, it makes little sense, because Terrence and Ta- Ramdas were talking, and then suddenly there's this uh, non-sequitur of a conversation that just doesn't work without seeing what's going on. Uh, so as I said, I went back and watched that part on YouTube once again, and uh, it's, it's really funny when you see it and uh, know what went on. So you might want to check that out for yourself when you get a chance. Now, getting back to my meetings with Stephen Marshank, uh, in addition to the tapes that he gave me, uh, which I haven't had a chance to take a close look at just yet, he also told me that he has over 100 hours of video recordings that didn't make it into the final two-hour cut of Prognosis. Of course, uh, since it was a two-camera shoot, that means that there are actually about 50 hours of audio still unheard, uh, interviews that Terrence did, etc., And in a month or so, if all goes well, I think the uh, process of digitizing that video with a view of putting it all up on YouTube will uh, be underway. And uh, we're going to be able to use the audio here in the salon, uh, the ones that uh, seem interesting and fit. Uh, I can't remember all the names of the people that Terrence interviewed at the time and uh, that didn't make it into the final release of the film. But as I recall, there are some really fascinating people we have yet to hear from. So uh, thank you, Stephen, very much. So uh, those are a few of the highlights from my little vacation, uh, which was largely devoted to uh, just resting and reading. Uh, In fact, I wasn't even much help in the kitchen uh, this time, I'm afraid. Uh, But now I'm so rested up that I'm borderline lethargic. Uh, Actually, I could get used to reading and napping all day every day. (laughs) But I figured that I'd better push myself to uh, get back in the groove here in the salon. However, uh, before I introduce today's program, I also first want to uh, thank several of our fellow saloners who didn't take a break from the salon and who either bought one of my books or who made a direct donation to the salon. It was uh, very heartening to return home and discover that while I was away, you hadn't forgotten me. So uh, thank you all ever so much. And in particular, uh, I want to mention a fellow saloner from Quebec who not only made a very generous donation to the salon, but who also sent a very thoughtful letter that I hope reflects the ideas of many of our other fellow saloners. 
What I'm referring to is that after some youthful experiences with psychedelics and then after spending several decades of not being involved with them, he reconnected by first reading information of interest to him on arrowid.org. And as I've said before, that's E-R-O-W-I-D.org. And uh, from Arrowhead, uh, then he began his experimentations in altered states of consciousness with a below-the-threshold dose uh, and gradually titrating up uh, and a week or two apart until he found his proper dose. Now, the reason I'm pointing out safety tips again right now is that I read a story about a young man who went to South America recently in order to have an ayahuasca experience. Sadly, he died. The story that I read said that the uh, shaman, or ayahuascaro, had mixed an additional plant into the brew for each of the participants. Uh, apparently, whatever he mixed in that young man's portion was uh, deadly. Now, it's not at all uncommon for ayahuascaros to add a third plant at uh, certain times. In fact, I once had an ayahuasca experience where datura was added. And I'm here to tell you that it was uh, one of the most difficult and unpleasant ayahuasca experiences of my life. Uh, after that, I never participated when a third plant was added to the tea. But uh, in my case, none of us died. Also, uh, according to the one story that I read about this incident, the participants apparently got together, drank the brew, and then went back alone to their tents. Now, in the tradition in which I used to participate, we always held the circle together until the last of us was back to baseline. I don't know if this is the norm or if going alone to your tent is the norm. All I know is that in the case of the unfortunate young man who died, it wasn't until sometime the next day that anyone even bothered to check on him, and that was when they discovered he was dead. But the story gets even worse. Apparently, this uh, Iowa Carroll panicked and uh, buried the boy's body at the edge of his retreat center. Then he told the boy's family that their son had uh, just taken his suitcase and wandered off back into town. It took several trips to Peru by members of his family uh, until an investigation was finally held and the body discovered. So if you ever think about venturing to the Amazon and taking ayahuasca, it would obviously behoove you to uh, have more than one personal recommendation as to uh, which of these ayahuascaros are legitimate, which are a little flaky, and uh, which ones are to be avoided at all costs. I won't go into that anymore right now because uh, I think that we've covered that topic in as much depth as possible in my previous podcast about ayahuasca. In the event that uh, you miss them, uh, you can go back to our program notes via psychedelicsalon.us and on the right side of the page, you'll find a listing of categories that we've covered here in the salon and uh, then just click on the ayahuasca category. Well, uh, that was quite a little detour. What I started to do was uh, mention a couple of our other fellow saloners who I heard from recently. And one of them is the artist, Martin Whitfoot, who has an exhibit now taking place in Culver City, California. The exhibit began on the 15th of September and runs through the first week of October. Uh, it's a solo show titled Empire and is at the Corey Helford Gallery at uh, 8522 Washington Boulevard in Culver City. And I'll put a link to that uh, gallery and to Martin's website in the program notes. Uh, so if you get a chance, uh, you maybe want to click through and take a look at his work. I uh, not only find it quite beautiful, but uh, very thought-provoking as well. Plus, uh, if you are anywhere near Culver City, you may want to stop by the gallery where, if you're lucky, you might be able to uh, find a few of the others that you've been searching for. 
And one last thing before I uh, at long last introduce today's program, I want to give a big thank you to our fellow saloner, Naomi C., who sent me a postcard from Burning Man. Now, I've sent quite a few postcards from the Burning Man post office myself, but this is the very first one that I've ever received. And uh, knowing how difficult it is to uh, even think of anything that isn't on the playa while you're at Burning Man, well, uh, your thoughtfulness in sending that card warmed my heart, Naomi. Uh, Thank you for thinking of me. Now, uh, at long last, uh, getting to the focus of this podcast... What I'm about to play is a talk that I learned about from our fellow saloner, Trevor W. And you can also listen to it on the J. Krishnamurti website. Uh, the reason that I'm playing it for you here is to once again make a little attempt to interest more people in this wonderfully enlightened being. And should you enjoy this talk, then I highly recommend that you surf on over to the J. Krishnamurti website, which I'll link to in today's program notes. And uh, there you'll be able to listen to the other five talks in this series. And since that website encourages others to embed these Krishnamurti talks on their, their sites as well, uh, well, I'll do the same thing and embed the other five parts of this lecture along with the program notes. Uh, in fact, I'll also include the talk that we're about to listen to so you can uh, hear the last 20 minutes of it uh, or so that I cut out uh, where the Q&A begins, and uh, I just didn't have room to put it in this podcast. Personally, I don't think you can go wrong in investing a little of your time listening to Krishnamurti and thus expand your mind in yet other directions. At least he has that effect on me. I think we ought to make these meetings quite informal. And perhaps at the end of the talk, if there is time, we can ask each other questions and hope that we will find the right answer. I think it's always rather difficult to communicate. Words must be used. And each word has a certain definite meaning. But I think we should bear in mind that the word is not the thing. The word does not convey the the total significance. And if we merely, semantically, stick to words, then I'm afraid we shall not be able to proceed much further. To communicate really, deeply, needs not only attention, but also certain quality of affection, which doesn't mean that one must not be critical or that one must accept what is said, but if one is sufficiently alert, not only intellectually, but avoiding the pitfall of words, they should also be, I think, to really communicate with another about anything. A certain quality of direct affection, certain quality of exchange, examination, 
with full capacity to investigate, to examine. And then only communication can take place. Perhaps then there will be a commune, a, a communication with each other. Because we are going to deal with so many subjects, so many problems during these talks, and we are going to go into them fairly deeply. And obviously to understand what the speaker is saying, if you are interested, one has to have certain quality of attention in listening. Very few of us listen, because we ourselves have so many ideas, so many opinions, so many conclusions and beliefs, which actually prevent the act of listening. And that's one of the most difficult things to listen to another. We are so ready with our own opinions, with our own conclusions. We are apt to interpret, agreeing or disagreeing, taking sides or saying, I don't agree, and quickly brushing it aside. All that, it seems to me, prevents the act of actual listening. It's only when there is this listening, which is not merely intellectual, because any clever person can listen to a certain argument, to a certain exposition of ideas, but to listen with the mind and the heart, with total being of oneself, if there is such thing as a being of oneself, totally, requires a great deal of attention. And therefore, to attend implies not knowing one's own beliefs, concepts, conclusions, what one wants and so on, but also putting those aside for the time being and listening. And then I think only is it possible to commune with each other, because we have to talk over great many things, because life has so many problems, we are all so confused, very few have any belief in anything or faith. There is war, there is insecurity, great anxiety, fear, the despair, the agony of daily existence and the utter boredom and loneliness of it. And beyond all this there is the problem of death and love. And we are caught in this tremendous confusion.
and to understand the totality of it, not the fragment that is very clear to you and which you want to achieve, not the special conclusion which you think is right, or an opinion or a belief, but rather one should take the whole content of existence, the whole history of man, his suffering, his loneliness, his anxiety, the utter hopelessness of meaninglessness of life. And I think if we can do that, not take any particular fragment which may for the time being appeal to you or you give you pleasure, but rather see the whole map, as it were, of existence, not partially, not fragmentarily, but see the whole of it, then perhaps we shall be able to bring about a radical revolution in the psyche. And it seems to me that's the main crisis of our life, that though there are vast changes going on in the world, world of science, mathematics and all the rest of it, Technologically there is tremendous change going on. But in the psyche of the human being there is very little change. The crisis is not in the outward technological advancement, but rather in the way we think, in the way we live, in the way we feel. I think that is where a revolution must take place. And this revolution can only pos be possible not according to any particular pattern, because no revolution, psychologically I'm talking about, is possible, if there is merely the imitation of a particular ideology. To me, all ideologies are idiotic. There's no meaning. What has meaning is what is, not what should be. And to understand what is, there must be freedom to look, not only to look outwardly but inwardly. You know, really, there is no division as the outer and the inner. It's a it's a process, a unitary movement. And the moment you understand the outer, you are also understanding the inner. But unfortunately we have divided, broken up life into fragments, the outer, the inner, the good and the bad, and so on. As one has divided the world into nationalities, with all their miseries and wars, we have also divided 
our own existence inward as and outward. I think that is the worst thing one can do, to break up one's own existence into various fragments. And that's where contradiction lies. And most of us are caught in this contradiction, and hence in conflict. So, with all the complications, the confusions, the misery, the enormous human effort that has gone up to build a, a society which is getting more and more complex. And is it possible, living in this world, to be totally free of all confusion and therefore of all contradiction and hence be free of fear? Because a mind that is afraid obviously has no peace. And it's only when the mind is completely and totally free of fear then it can observe, then it can investigate. One of our major problems is violence, not only outwardly but inwardly. Violence is not merely physical violence, but the whole structure of the psyche is based on violence. That is, this constant effort, this constant adjustment to a pattern, constant pursuit of a pleasure, and therefore the avoidance of anything which gives pain, discarding the capacity to look, to observe what is, all that is part of violence aggression, competition, the constant comparison between what is and what should be, the imitation, surely all that is a form of violence. Because man, since historical times, has chosen war as the way of life. Our daily existence is a war in ourselves as well as outwardly. We're always in conflict with ourselves and with another. And is it possible for the mind to be totally free of this violence? Because we need peace, outwardly as well as inwardly. And peace is not possible if there is not freedom freedom from this total aggressive attitude towards life. So, we all know this, that there is violence, that there is tremendous hate in the world, war, destruction, competition, each one pursuing his own particular form of pleasure. 
All that, it seems to me, is a way of life which breeds contra contradiction and violence. And we know this intellectually, we have thought about it, we statistically we can examine it, intellectually we can rationalize the whole thing and say, well, that's inevitable, that is the history of man for the last two million years and more and we'll go on that way. And so one asks oneself whether it is at all possible to bring about a total revolution in the psyche, in oneself, not as an individual. The individual is the local entity, the American, the Indian, the Russian. He can do very little. <coughs> but we are not the local entities. We are human beings. There is no barrier as an Indian or an American, Russian, a communist and so on. If we regard the whole process of existence as a of a human being, of which you and I are, if we can bring about a, a revolution there, not in the individual, because after all, apart from nationalities and the absurdities of religion, organized religion, and superficial culture, to go beyond that, as a human being we all suffer, we go through tortures of anxiety, there is sorrow, there is the everlasting search for the good and the noble and what is generally called the God. God. We're all afraid. So if we can bring about a change there, in the human psyche, then the individual will act quite differently. This implies that there is no division between the conscious and the unconscious. I know it is the fashion to discuss a great deal and study a great deal about the unconscious. Really, there is no such thing as the unconscious. We'll discuss all this. We'll go into all this. I'm just outlining what we are going to talk over together during the next five talks. And <clears throat> is it possible for the human being to totally empty the past so that he is made new, to look at life entirely differently? See, the past, whether it is the fifty years past, or two million years past, which we call the unconscious, the unconscious which is the racial residue, the tradition, the motives, 
the hidden pursuits, the pleasures, that which we call the unconscious, is not the unconscious, it is always in the conscious. Because we have only... there is only consciousness. You may not be aware of the total content of that consciousness. And all consciousness is limitation. And we are caught in this. We move in this consciousness from one field to another field, calling it by different names, but it's still the conscious. And this game we play as the unconscious, the conscious, the, um, the past, the future, and all that is within that field. You can observe it for yourself. You are very aware of your own process of thinking, feeling, acting. How we deceive ourselves, move from one field, one, from one corner to another. And this consciousness, which is always limited, because in that consciousness there is always the observer. And wherever there is the observer, the sensor, the watcher, he creates the limitation within that consciousness. I think that's fairly simple if you look at it. So any (coughs) change brought about by will by pleasure, by an avoidance or an escape. See, any change or revolution brought about by influence, by pressure, stray, convenience for particular pleasure is still within that limit, in that consciousness. And therefore it's always limited. And therefore it's always breeding conflict. So. If one observes this, not through books, not through psychologists and analysts and all the rest of it, but if one observes this actually, factually, as it takes place in yourself, as a human being, then the question will inevitably arise whether it is possible to be conscious where it is necessary to be conscious, going to the office and all the rest of it, and where consciousness is a limitation and therefore be free of it. Not that you go into a trance or amnesia or some mystical nonsense, unless there is that freedom from this enclosing consciousness, this time-binding consciousness, that we shall not have peace, because peace is not dependent on politicians, on the army, they are much too vested interest in all that, nor on the priests, nor on any belief They have taught all religions, except perhaps 
one or two Buddhism and Hinduism, perhaps, always talked peace and entered, entered into war. And that's the way of our life. And I feel if there is no freedom from this limitation of consciousness as time-binding with its observer as the center, man will go on endlessly suffering. And so, is it possible to empty the whole of consciousness, the whole of my mind, with all its tricks and vanities, deceptions and pursuits and moralities and all that, based essentially on pleasure. Is it possible to be totally free of all that? Empty the mind so that it can look and act and live totally differently. I say it is possible, not out of vanity or some superstitious mystical nonsense, but it is possible only when the observer, the center, and the observed, there is the realization that the observer is the observed. This, uh, this is extremely, uh, not difficult, requires a great deal of understanding to come to this. It's not a matter of your sentimentally agreeing or disagreeing. You know what is understanding? what understanding means. Surely understanding is not intellectual, <coughs> not saying understand your words, the meaning of your words, that's not understanding, surely. Nor is it an emotional agreement, a sentimental affair. There is understanding of any problem, of any issue, when the mind is totally quiet, not induced quietness, not disciplined quietness, but the mind is completely still, then you, there is an understanding. <coughs> this is what we do. Actually this takes place when you have a problem of any kind. You have thought a great deal about it, investigated, examined, back and forth. There is no answer. And you more or less push it aside and your mind becomes quiet with regard to that problem and suddenly you have an answer. This happens to so many people, ordinary, this is nothing. So understanding can only come, surely, when there is a direct perception not a reasoned conclusion. So, our question is then, how is a man, a human being, not American, not Englishman, not a Chinese and all the rest of it, how is a human being to create not only a new society, and he can only create that when there is a total revolution in himself as a human being. And is that possible? So that he has no fear at all 
because he understands the nature of fear, what is the structure of fear, the meaning of fear, comes directly into contact with it, not a thing to be avoided, but to be understood. And it means, is it possible for the whole of that structure of thought which is always functioning round the centre, is it possible to, in understanding the whole machinery of thinking, which is the result of memory and thought is the reaction of memory, and hence the limitation of consciousness, is it possible to totally not think to totally function without the memory as is as we now function, as it now functions. I hope I am conveying something. If not, we will go into it. You see, this brings us to a point What is the function of idea? Idea being the prototype, the formula, the ideal, the, conce the concept. Has it any function at all? For us idea is very important. And we act, function, we act on idea on concepts, on formulas. A belief is a formula. And all our activity is from ideas or based on ideas. And hence a contradiction between act and the idea. No. I have an idea. I have an ideal a belief and all the rest of it. And I act according to that or approximate my action to that. And action can never be... Uh, the idea, the idea is unreal, the action is real. The idea of a nation, the idea of a certain dogma, the dogma of belief in God and all the rest of it are purely ideological. And is it possible to act without the idea? Please, this requires a great deal of inquiry. Because as long as there is conflict, there must be pain and sorrow. Conflict in any form. And there must be conflict as long as there is contradiction. And the nature of contradiction is essentially the idea and the fact, the what is. If there is no idea at all, belief, dogma, the, the tomorrow, 
which is always the ideal tomorrow, then I can look at what is, actually, not translate it in terms of tomorrow, but see actually what is. And to understand what is, one need not have ideas. One, all that one has to do is to observe. So that brings us to a point which is, what is observing? What is seeing? I wonder if we ever see, observe, or do we see with the word, with a conclusion, with a name, and therefore they become the barriers to see. If you say, well, he's, a, he's an Indian from India with all his mystical ideas or romantic ideas and so on and so on, you're actually not seeing. So it is only possible to see when thought doesn't function. <laughs> if you are listening, except expecting some, I don't know what, and the expectation is preventing you from listening, or the idea, the concept, the knowledge prevents you from observing. If you look at a flower, or a tree, or a cloud, or the bird, whatever it is, Immediately your reaction is, you have given it a name, you like it or dislike it, you have categorized it, put it away in a, as a memory and you've stopped looking. So, is it possible to look, to see, without all the mentation taking place? Mentation is always thought as an idea, as memory, and it's, there is no direct perception. I do not know if you have not observed, if you have observed your friend or your wife or your husband looking, to look. You look at another, surely, with all the memories, misfortunes, insults and all the rest of it, and you look or you listen, you actually are not listening or seeing. And this process of non-observance is called relationship. Please, no, don't, don't, don't laugh it away, because as I said, or I probably have not said this time, all this is very serious. It isn't a philosophical lecture which you listen to, talk which you listen to and then go home and carry on. It's only to the very serious man there is living, there is life. And one cannot, with all this appalling confusion, misery, just laugh it away or go on to go to a cinema and forget all about the beastly stuff. Therefore it requires extraordinary, earnest, attentive seriousness. 
And seriousness is not a reaction. All reactions are limitations. But when one observes, listens, looks, then one begins to understand whether it is at all possible for man to be totally free of his conditioning. Because we are all conditioned by the food, the clothes, the climate, the culture, the society we live in. And is it possible to be free of that conditioning? Not in some distant future, but on the instant. That's why I said whether it is at all possible to free the mind totally, empty it completely so that it is something new. If this does not take place, we are committed to sorrow. We are committed to an everlasting fear. So how is it possible, and is it at all possible, to free the mind of the past totally, empty it, though at certain, in certain fields the, power, the knowledge is essential. And if I didn't know where I was going, all the technological knowledge which man has acquired through centuries, one can't forget all that, put all that aside. But I'm talking about a psyche which has accumulated so many concepts, ideas, experiences, and caught within this consciousness with the observer as its centre. Now, having put the question, what's the answer? And who is going to answer it? It is, it is the right question, not an irrelevant question. When one puts the right question, there is the right answer. But it requires a great deal of integrity to put the right question. And we have put the right question. Is it possible for man who has lived for so many centuries and million years, who has pursued a path of violence, has accepted war as the way of life, in daily life as well as on the battlefield, who is seeking everlastingly peace and denying it, is it possible for man to transform himself completely so that he lives totally differently? Now, having put the question, who will answer it? Will you look to somebody to answer it? Some guru? Some priest? Some psychologist? Or are you waiting for the speaker to answer it? If you put the question rightly, the answer is in the question. But very few of us put, have put that question. 
We have accepted the norm of life. And to change that requires a great deal of energy. And we are committed through certain dogmas, certain beliefs, certain activities, the way of life. We are committed. And we are frightened to change it, not knowing what it will breed. So can we, realizing the implications of all this, can we honestly put that question? And how you put it matters also, surely. I can put it, ask myself intellectually, out of curiosity, out of a moment when I have, can I can spare from my daily routine, but that will not answer it. So, what will answer that question depends on the mind, how earnest it is, or how, or how lazy it is, or how indifferent to the whole structure and the misery of existence. Now, having put that question, we are going to find out. We are going to talk over together during these five more talks that are to come, how to discover the answer for ourselves, therefore not depending on anybody. There is no authority, there is no guru, no priest that will answer this. And to come to that point when you are not dependent on anybody psychologically is the first probably the last step, then when, one, when the mind has freed itself from all its diseases, then we can find out, then it can find out if there is a reality which is not put together by thought. If there is a thing as God, as a man has searched sought after and hunted that be. And we have to answer that question. And also we have to answer the question of what death is. A society, a human being that does not understand what death is, will not know what life is, nor will he know what love is. And merely to accept or deny of something which is not of thought is rather immature. But if one would go into it, one must lay the foundation of virtue, which is nothing to do with social morality. One must understand the nature of pleasure, not deny pleasure or accept pleasure, but understand the nature of it the structure of it. And obviously there must be freedom from fear, and hence a mind that is completely free from discontent and wanting more experience, then only it seems to me possible to find out if there is something beyond the human 
fear which has created God. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Is there something beyond the human fear which has created God? Well, uh, <laughs> I guess that question should give you something to think about for a while. And to be honest, I'm not really equipped to respond to or expand on a talk by the wonderful Krishnamurti, and so I'm not even going to make that attempt right now. However, uh, that said, I am going to have to listen to the next five talks in this lecture to better understand what he means when he says that there is no such thing as the unconscious, because uh, at this point in time, while I do understand his point of view on the subject, it doesn't quite square with my own views, uh, but perhaps we're only quibbling about the definition of words, huh? Ah, the pitfall of words. And uh, as much as I'd like to say a few words about the Occupy movement right now, uh, which, by the way, celebrated its one-year anniversary a few days ago, the truth is that, uh, well, I'm kind of worn out after being so long-winded in the beginning, and uh, there's quite a lot that I have to say about the movement, uh, which is very much alive and well in case you are only following it through the uh, corporate news and propaganda sources. So, in a week or so, I plan on doing a somewhat more extensive program about Occupy, and if you have some stories of your own to tell about what's going on with Occupy in your area, please uh, send me a brief description of what you're up to. And uh, you can send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. And uh, right now, believe it or not, I've got an empty mailbox, which uh, I hope to be able to keep up with for a while. <laughs> of course, uh, the reason my mailbox is empty is that yesterday I transferred over 800 unread emails into my island folder. And uh, you probably have one of those island folders, too. You know, the aisles. Someday I'll do this, someday I'll do that, and someday I'll get all those emails read. But uh, it probably won't be today. Ah, the someday aisles. What a beautiful place to visit. Now that uh, I said that, I guess it sounds kind of rude, and I certainly don't mean that I'm not thrilled to hear from so many people. But it's still just me here, and uh, I have to limit myself to less than an hour a day for email if I want to finish my writing projects, uh, do these podcasts, and most importantly, spend some time playing with my grandchildren, which is uh, what I'm going to do right now. So until next time, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>